this is not part of my sermon. I've just thought of it and I've stood up. Because uh, we told you that Christmas has got 12 days. It ends on 12th night, which is the 6th of January, which the Western Church celebrates as Epiphany. And in Epiphany, we celebrate particularly the coming of the wise men or Magi. And uh, so here we are on the 29th of January reading the lectionary passage for today, which assumes that the wise men have already been. So we're now treating with them after they've gone. But if we follow the lectionary next week, which incidentally we're not going to do because it's Covenant Sunday, we'd be back with the wise men. So you've got to assume that you know about the wise men. Why on earth do we do it like that? Well, two reasons, just uh, apropos of me just thinking this as I get up. I don't mean I'm thinking up the reasons, I mean thinking of telling you the reasons. Uh, one is that a, a great many Christians in the world, of course, do celebrate their Christmas in which they combine the Christmas story with the coming of the wise men all at once on Epiphany. And therefore, for many, many, many Christians throughout the world, it's not Christmas yet. And the other is that even the parts of the church that don't celebrate Christmas on the 6th of January, but celebrate it on the 25th of December, think that the wise men are in themselves so important that they need a special occasion just for us to reflect on what they mean. And so, in a sense, you have to find a slot in the, in the calendar for them. End of lesson. But whatever else it is, and it comes through very, very, very clearly in our reading this morning that John's just read for us, the Christmas story is a story of movement, of people moving here and there for various reasons, and I want to simply focus on a moving Christmas this morning. The gospel passage that we've just had read for us uh, is found only in Matthew's gospel, only Matthew tells us about the wise men coming from the east, and we usually think of these as three kings or three magi, wise ones, uh, but that's an assumption. This is a pub quiz team f uh, question for you, just to log away for when, if you ever get it asked. Uh, this, the number three is a complete assumption. Uh, we assume because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that there were three kings. But actually, they could have been one very generous king with an entourage who gave all three gifts, or they could have been three generous kings and ten miserly kings, and you could have had a whole batch of 13 of them. We've no idea. But it's Matthew who tells them about us, uh, that tells us about them. And consequently, therefore, it's Matthew who tells us that warned in a dream, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus flee Bethlehem. Notice how God communicates so often in dreams in the early chapters of Matthew, and Luke, incidentally. And notice, I know that some of you like this when I sort of observe little bits of the passage before I get to actually tell you what I want to tell you about it. And notice how Joseph in the Old Testament is also an astute listener to dreams. It must be something in the name Joseph, so watch it, okay? Joseph receives a dream and takes Mary and the infant Jesus south into Egypt to escape the massacre of the innocents, as it's called, the killing of infants 
by a crazed and pathologically insane Herod. And if you think this is probably unlikely, eh, we know from documents about Herod Antipas that he killed several of his own sons uh, in order that they didn't live to succeed him. So you can imagine what kind of person we're dealing with. Notice too, just apropos of nothing, those of you who like this kind of thing in scriptures, that from the moment of chapter 2 in uh, Matthew's gospel, King Herod is never referred to as King Herod. In every occasion that we read this thing, it's just Herod. And you say to yourself, hang on a minute, you know, is he, is he trying to save papyrus as he copies it down, get more on a page? Not at all. What, what he's telling you is that the true king of the Jews has been born in a stable in Bethlehem. Therefore, this is not King Herod, king of the Jews. That's somebody else. This is just Herod. So there's clues. So they go into Egypt with all the associations in the Old Testament about Egypt. It's the place, remember, where Abraham went, leaving what incidentally was almost in the promised land to go and then be led partway back. It's where Jacob was led into Egypt. And all the stories. And of course, supremely in the Old Testament, it's the story of the whole people of Israel who have been captured and enforced as slaves to go and work for decades for a series of Pharaoh kings who eventually leave through the events of the Exodus. They leave Egypt followed by an army crossing over the Red Sea, finally through Joshua entering the, foreign, uh, the, the, the promised land after 40 years wandering in the wilderness and all that. And just notice just that little ripple, that little resonance of Scripture that we're fleeing into Egypt here because of the massacre of the innocents. And the last task of the Passover that tries to persuade Pharaoh to let his, these people go rather than just have them leave against his will is the threat of the death of the firstborn child in the house from which the people of Israel are rescued by the passing over. Matthew knows his Old Testament and he's giving you all sorts of clues about what this passage is about and supremely who this Jesus little baby about whom chronologically we know virtually nothing yet but Matthew is dripping into the very first verses of the second chapter of his gospel this baby about whom we know nothing yet think think Abraham this baby think Jacob, think the patriarchs, this baby, think about rescue, think about passing over, think about entering the promised land, think about somebody who is true king. It's all there. 
That wasn't my sermon either, I just thought I'd tell you. But I promise you it's not very long. Eventually, though, there comes a time, and it's probably several years later, when in another dream, the Holy Family are told that it's safe to return home. Herod is dead. So they're on the move again. Without a plane, a train, or an automobile, they make the long, slow journey out of Egypt and heading back towards Israel, towards particularly Judah or Judea. But not back to where they originally came from. We mustn't think, for instance, that they're returning home that in Hollywood style they come over the top of the hill and they look at a little town nestling in the valley and they rest on one another and the toddler Jesus is running around and they say to him, now, this is where we left to go to the place where you were born and you've never seen it, but look, there's grandma's house down there and look, that's where dad lived. They're not going home in that sense. Because on the way, Joseph, not so much in a dream, we're told, but with a natural protectiveness about his family, says, Herod's dead, but his tyrannical son is still on the throne in Judah. We're not going back there. We'll go back somewhere else. And... uh, They make, therefore, the trip north to a quiet rural town or area called Nazareth. And it's the third international journey that Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ child, will have made before he's the age of what? Six, seven. And each moving was imposed upon them. The first move, which we tell over the Christmas story, is the result of the Romans saying so. Romans, the occupying military and political and social force of the time, saying, Joseph, it's taxation time. Go back to the place where you were born, register, pay your taxes, no exceptions. And the little donkey story is basically not a group of people who decide to have an exotic trekking holiday for a fortnight. It's a group of people who are commanded by an occupying force. You will go, you will report, you must pursue and obey these commands. And in spite of the cosy romanticism, therefore, of the Christian story, it's hard to imagine that they actually liked the idea. Almost in Monty Python form, you can see Joseph going down the road. What have the Romans ever done for us? Blah, blah, blah. And to make all this journey ridiculous. It was linked to control, to authority, to taxation. Why would they like the idea? The second international journey from Bethlehem into 
an unknown place in Egypt is to escape murder and violence, even extermination. And then the third journey from Egypt back into the land, not of Judah, but north into almost on the borders of Samaria, for goodness sake, where those terrible Samaritans come from. It's a bit like returning to Nazareth is a bit like someone coming from Kent having to settle in Lancashire. Which, as you can imagine, coming from the mouth of a Yorkshireman isn't exactly a brilliant prospect. With apologies to Dan Forshaw and everybody who comes from Lancashire. It's an illustration. What I want you to notice, having labored those things, is this. That the story of Christmas is so akin to the stories of today. People all over the world today are moving for a whole variety of reasons and some of them are deadly serious. Families with children fleeing war zones, perhaps in Syria, moving simply to increase a chance of life. Perhaps in China or Kurdistan, people fleeing in order to prevent them being rounded up or persecuted because of their race or their caste or their tribe or their ethnicity. People perhaps in Vietnam or in South Sudan, groups so desperate that they're willing to pay enormous sums of money and embark on perilous journeys to try and reach the UK or the West in overfull boats or refrigerated lorries. Or perhaps in Australia or Somalia or Yemen, there are folk fleeing famine and fires. Or perhaps in South Pacific Islands, there are communities realizing that their towns and the very places that they live and call home are disappearing as sea levels rise and they are moving to higher ground to survive but they're moving to higher foreign ground. Did you know that throughout 2019 and continuing over this Christmas period never in the history of recorded humanity have so many people been on the move. It's a moving Christmas and the Sunday after Christmas is the, perhaps the time to break out of the romanticism of gooing babies in mangers and remember actually why they're there and what happens to them then. But there are other reasons to move and other lessons to learn from the Christmas story. But before we do that, we might make a first response. In other words, this is the hinge in a two-part sermon and you've had three quarters of it already. Our first response today might therefore be at the end of the year and before we get to New Year resolutions. 
to pray, to act, to give, and to change our lives so that we are more understanding, more compassionate, more moved about those who move for a variety of enforced and traumatic reasons. But let's turn to some of the other reasons. And here I'm talking about ourselves in terms of our own spirits and our own discipleship, just for about four minutes. There's the wise men, they move. They started a journey in an exotic place somewhere in the east, we don't quite know where. But the impression is given that they've traveled for quite some distance and some time following a sign of a star given to them which leads them eventually to the manger in a Bethlehem outhouse where this baby itself, a refugee, is laid. They're people who move in pursuit of knowledge and wisdom They've made that journey in order to explore because they're curious, because they're open to pursue new knowledge and new adventures. And at the cusp of a new decade, I ask this, has our faith, our Christian faith, actually become dry docked? It doesn't move us to anything much at all anymore except possible mental assent and being a regular member of a community of a church. That actually we've got too little curiosity. We've done too little study. We've put too much complacence upon our Christian life and growth and not enough appetite to follow after what more God might want to teach us and lead us into. We're the kind of wise person that would see the star and send somebody else and say, when you get back, tell us what it was like. Because we're not moving anymore. And if I'm describing you, then resolve this morning to do something about it. And we'll say a prayer in a little while. Other than there's the shepherds. Moving because an angel of the Lord has appeared to them and they are sore afraid. But the angel says, don't be frightened. I've not come to spook you out. I've come to declare to you that Christ is born and what I want you to do is to go and see him. And he's just down the road. And the angel goes and they look at one another, these working men, and they say, let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened. There are people, and there'll be some of us in this congregation this morning, where, who, for whom God wants to show us this or that or the other. God wants us to experience something. And in order to do that, we've got to move. God's saying, you mustn't miss this. It's absolutely vital that you experience this, that you're in the right place at the right time to see this. 
So leave the day job, even if it's just for a short time, and move and go. And at the cusp of a new decade, are we open to changing our lives, albeit for just a short time on a retreat or a special occasion or a course of study? Or is it time to change direction in response to God's command? And if that's you, we'll lead a prayer now in just a couple of minutes. But finally note this, that whether you're a wise man from afar or a shepherd just down the road or up the hill just down the road, we are all making two movements. Mary and Joseph move with Jesus and the Magi and the shepherds move to Jesus. And I want to use that as the last image this morning. On the last Sunday of a year with the new year and all its resolutions just round the corner, we ask these, ourselves this question on a pondering Sunday, as Tony described it. Those of us who are followers of Christ, are we ready to move with Jesus? Where he's taking us, where, what he's asking of us, what he's doing and asking us to partake in what he's doing. Or are we observers or are we participants in the kingdom, ministry, and mission of Christ? Like Ruth says to Naomi, so we can say, today on the last Sunday of a, a year and a decade, I will go where you go. It's a moving time. And there may be some of us here this morning, who know that although we got the language and we can say the Lord's Prayer without looking at the board, that we know actually that we're not really very close to Jesus anymore at all. We're far away from one reason or another, and I'm not just talking about physical distance. Our active best form of Christianity actually is some time in the past and for some of us quite a long time in the past. And so today as one year moves to another, the invitation is will we choose this moving Christmas to move towards Jesus once again? And find that as we open our wills and our minds and our consciousness to draw nearer to God, that God in Christ draws nearer to us. It's always a twofold movement. And then he'll say to us what he always says to us. And he needs to be near because he rarely shouts it. He'll say, follow me. Because Christianity is essentially a moving faith. So perhaps in one way or another, 
we need to move and be moved in a world where so many people have to move. Let's say a prayer together.